this particular framework of the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Vihara. Brahma means God or the realm of gods. And Vihara is home. So we can think of it as the home of the gods or we might say the divine abodes or the divine homes. And these four seems a little loud. Yeah. These four are a loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And each one has a particular practice that we can do to cultivate these certain qualities of the heart. Each one has a little bit of a different flavor, a little, a little bit of a different aspect. But each one is an expression of the awakened mind or the awakened heart. And these beautiful, these are very beautiful states of mind that gain their power and strength from their purity, the purity of their essence that they are. We can call these qualities of love, we can use the general word love, but each one is a particular flavor of love. And as we explore it and investigate it, we can, we can even sense and feel each of these particular flavors of love that come through the Brahma Viharas. The loving kindness aspect is that heartfelt wish for all beings to be happy. You really feel it in your, in, your, in your being, in your heart, that you really want all beings to be happy. And you are one of the beings. You include yourself in that heartfelt wish that you also will be happy. The compassion is turning that love, that wish for people's happiness, for beings' happiness, just turning it a little bit towards the painful aspect. And when the love touches that painful aspect, there's something a little bit different that awakens in the heart, which we call compassion or karuna. So it's the love turned towards the pain, the painful aspect of life. And it's the wish for beings to be alleviated from their pain so that they will feel more happy. The joy, or the mudita, is really, in the Brahma Vihara, it's an expression of an empathetic joy for other people's joy and success, where you can actually feel happy because other people are happy. You enjoy, you, you, you feel the joy of the happiness that is here, instead of feeling envious or jealous of other people's joys and successes. And equanimity, equanimity really is, for me, how I feel and understand it, is the ground of our being that is love itself. Because the equanimity is an expression of the mind and the being that is not in any kind of reactivity for or against anything at all. The equanimity that can be still, that can be steady in the face of any experience that arises. It is a non-reactive, a balanced state of mind that can face all experience with that aspect of stillness, that embraces whatever is occurring. It's really a, a, a very clear expression of that love that arises out of our heart, that arises out of the ground of our being. And in a way, the equanimity is really what allows the other three to be pure, to be pure expressions of love rather than distorted expressions that get distorted through the sense of self coming in. For example, the loving kindness can get distorted when the self is present by being kind of a self-possessed love or a self-interested, in, uh, self-interested love. What's in it for me? What can I get out of this situation or this relationship? So it's not, as, it's not a pure expression of the loving-kindness, but when there's equanimity, the equanimity is what grounds that loving-kindness 
so that we can stay steady and don't fall into the states of self-interest and self-possessiveness. When the equanimity is present in the compassion, when we turn that love towards the pain, we, the equanimity keeps us from falling into states of grief or sorrow or, or anger, aversion towards what we see, but actually allows us to stay balanced and steady so we can actually stay present with that painful aspect. The equanimity brings that. And when there's equanimity in joy, it allows us again to stay somewhat steady so that we don't fall into states of what's called over-exuberance or um, uh, delight, which then is just sending pleasure back to the sense of self, and then we get very excited because we feel so happy about being happy. So the happiness just turns back to the self. But again, this, this equanimity allows us just to really feel the purity of that joy because another person is feeling joy or is having successes in their life. So the equanimity grounds us in our, in our practice, in our experience. So we practice these in order to make these qualities our natural home, our divine abode. So we're actually living more fully in the experience of the God realm, which is possible in this human realm, in this as, as a human being. And as we practice them, they become supports for awakening, for the path to awakening. As we cultivate and develop more of these aspects, they, they they bring us more strength and integrity in ourselves so that we can continue along the way. We can t- continue along the path. I call these practices mind-turning practices because when we are actually practicing, whether it's through a repetition of phrases, which each one has their own phrases that we can work with, or whether it's just cultivating the feeling and the attitude within the the heart and the mind itself, through the practice, the mind then begins to turn towards these qualities or turns towards awakening itself. And it's a very, I really love the image of the Buddha. The Buddha uses this this, um, metaphor of turning the mind or inclining the mind. Sometimes it's translated that way, where we're actually uh, turning the mind away from the patterns of the ego, of the uh, greed, the hatred, and, and the confusion. And we're moving the mind and the heart and the being towards towards the liberation, towards the enlightened essence. And they have power because they are really orienting us back to our own goodness. They're orienting us back to our own essential nature. Or we may say they're turning us back to our Buddha nature that we are. They give us glimpses. It's like the, you know, looking in a mirror, uh, reflecting back to us what's really possible for us as human beings. The key, really, in our practice, the key to the transformation, the key to the, 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 the changes that happen for us, really comes about with intention having intention, having clear intention in our practice. The Buddha talked about three wholesome intentions that we need to cultivate. And this is really the second aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path, this wise intention. Sometimes it's called wise thought. It's a little bit what I was beginning to talk about this morning when I was introducing uh, awareness, mindfulness of our thoughts because we actually want to begin to turn the mind towards the thoughts that are useful, that are wholesome, that are helpful, that are, that are truthful, and turn away from the thoughts that are not helpful for us, that are not useful, that lead to more suffering and pain. This is the 
second factor on the Eightfold Noble Path, when we talk about this being able to discriminate what kind of thoughts are arising in the mind so we can actually reshape our reality. So our, re- our reality begins to take on a more wholesome, a more open, a more a kind, compassionate, wise uh, 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 atmosphere. So the three wholesome intentions are, one is the intention for non-greed. And when we turn the mind or have the intention for non-greed, we are turning the mind towards renunciation. Because non-greed means we're not holding on, we're letting go. Or renunciation or letting go, the intention for non-greed. The second one being the intention for non-hatred which when we move towards this intention, it's really the intention for loving-kindness. Non-hatred is loving-kindness, turning the mind towards loving-kindness. And the third one, the intention for non-cruelty, for non-harming. And when we turn the mind towards non-harming, we're turning towards compassion. We're turning towards wanting to alleviate beings from pain, from harm. So it's really a very beautiful model for us to, to, to help us know what to, uh, what to pay attention to in our mind when we see certain patterns of thought arising, thoughts of, of strong lust or, or negativity or uh, confusion where we can actually begin to look and notice and discriminate those particular patterns and have, through the teachings, there are many, many uh, practices and techniques and supports to help us begin to turn the mind towards these qualities of awakening. We might say that these intentions have the power to direct the mind in the right direction. It's like sometimes we're not sure which way is the right direction. You know, we're saying, well, what, especially a lot of things we've been talking about here, you know, over this, this week, it's like some people have been saying that they're really kind of, everything's been turned upside down. They're not sure which direction they're going in at all. But what's so beautiful is that the, the map, the teachings of the Buddha, really keep pointing us in the so-called right direction, being the direction for awakening. And when we talk about going in the right direction, really what we're talking about is the intention to go in the right direction. It doesn't mean just because we have the intention to go that way, we're actually going to wind up in the right direction. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, says it this way. He says, if I lose my direction, I have to look for the North Star and I go north. That does not mean that I expect to arrive at the North Star. I just want to go in that direction. (laughs) So we we just have to orient orient ourselves in a particular way, and then we see where we wind up. Because if we have some kind of attachment or even idea about where we're actually going or what this experience is going to look like, whether it's love or compassion or uh, the, the opening of the heart or awakening, enlightenment, as soon as we create some kind of idea about it or conceptual framework about it, then we most likely are going to get lost because we're probably going not in the right direction. The direction direction we're continually asked just to set the intention and let go. Set the intention and let go. And let go and open to the experience that arises from that intention, which can be any possibility, any realm of possibility, which is really the beauty and the mystery of this path. So we're talking about inclining the mind, turning the mind, so that we don't just find ourselves in some kind of a random, habitual way of being. 
because that's what happens if we don't. If we don't attempt to orient our mind in a particular way, we just continue to go, they get caught up in our old habits, our old way of being. So something has to create that shift. Something has to create that, put us in a different direction so we don't just continually go into the same old grooves of our habitual tendencies. This the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. So we're attempting to, to, to generate a different inclination than the habits that lead us to pain and suffering, that lead us away from connectedness, from authenticity, from a sense of truthfulness of who we are and what our experience actually is. This is from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha. Very, very famous quote. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So we continue to practice because these habits are strong in our mind. If we, if we already had an experience that felt quite purified, where we were feeling quite happy, feeling quite content, at ease, maybe practice wouldn't be so important for us. But yet when we find that we have difficulties, we find ourselves in confusion, there's pain, there's difficulty, then we need to practice so we can begin to understand how we can come out of this confusion. So our practice, we say sometimes that it's a purification, it's sometimes called a purification practice, it's a purification of these negative forces of our mind. This is from Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So in some ways our practice is very simple. We might say that our practice is a practice of kindness. In fact, when the Dalai Lama was asked what his practice was, he said, I practice kindness. This continuing to bring this attitude of love, this reflection of love back to our experience again and again when we see ourselves either cutting off or fragmenting or being critical or being hurtful or harming ourselves or others in some way. If there's some way we could again draw on that love that we confined in our heart, in our being, which is there. This is what will bring about the transformation. And the more that we can do that, this is what actually continues to purify the forces of mind. It seems we, this is what we want to reinforce. 
are the, are the movements of, of the loving heart. Because this is really what will continue to open our heart and uplift our heart. So it gives us more strength and more capacity to continue on our path. And it seems that as we do that, as our capacity begins to increase, it seems that, certainly in my experience, that the challenges also increase. I don't know, have you noticed that? It seems like as you feel like you're starting to really get somewhere, then life throws something else up, that then you have, then you have to draw on more resources of your being to kind of meet that. So is it in <laughs> whatever we want to call that, the universe or, you know, whatever's in charge of this, <laughs> It, ha- it, has, it works in very interesting ways of continually challenging us or testing us so that we can grow and expand and deepen into the capacity of who we are. One aspect of the loving-kindness practice that is becoming more apparent to me is that the loving-kindness practice acts as a protection for us. That the more that I connect with the love in my own being, the more I actually feel safe, kind of feel a quality of of safeness or, or security in myself as I connect more fully with this love. In fact, loving-kindness, metta was originally taught to the monks and the nuns from the Buddha as a form of protection. He gave it to the monks, the monks and later the nuns were coming to the Buddha because as they were wandering in the forest and in the, uh, in the, in the homeless life, they were feeling frightened by, by many of the things they were encountering, particularly in the forest when they would there was a deep belief, and in, in there still is in the East, of, of spirits and demons and uh, um, ghosts. And so they would go out into the forest and they would encounter these spirits and these demons and these ghosts and all kinds of creatures and, and potentially robbers. And it was very frightening. And so when they would go back and uh, talk to the Buddha, the Buddha said, practice this, practice loving kindness really wish these demons well, wish these ghosts well, uh, cultivate a spirit of friendliness, of kindness towards these um, uh, uh, objects that, of your, uh, that you are encountering. And so this became a very important practice for this protection to work with their inner fear around what they're encountering. When I was um, in uh, Southern California just a few months ago, there was a friend of mine there uh, who had been a monk uh, for about five or six years in Thailand. He's now um, disrobed. And I was talking to him about the, you know, the teaching of the, Bud- the Buddha for the, for the uh, monks of Metta. And um, he said, you know, they're still teaching that as a protection for the monks there. And he said, um, I was at a retreat center in Swan Mok in Thailand. This was some you know, five or six years ago. And he was wanting to, there was a group retreat going on, but he wanted to go off and sit by himself. And he said when he was sitting, he was encountering around him, there were snakes and scorpions and centipedes and fire ants. And, you know, he was trying to do his meditation, but there are all these <laughs> creatures and you know, disturbances for him, and he was really quite frightened. So he went back to his Ajahn, Ajahn Po, and he said, you know, what should I do about this? You know, one thing I could do is I could kind of visualize golden light all around me, you know, as a protective field to kind of, would that help to kind of keep these creatures away? And Ajahn Po said, no, practice metta. You know, send them loving kindness. You know, wish them well. And so he did, and it was really, he, again, he was reminded what a powerful uh, practice that was, just to, to cultivate this deep friendship with these creatures that were around him, and it helped his, help him settle in himself. 
And as the friendliness within us begins to grow, as we do cultivate this more kind and friendly heart for ourselves and for others, the fear does start to release. We aren't as frightened as we are when we think we are so separate and that things around us and and, uh, things we encounter are alienated from us and we feel so, so different from that sense of friendliness uh, begins to help us relax and connect more openly, and then the fear starts to dissolve. Love is the antidote for fear. This practice of loving kindness, whether it's a formal practice or cultivating this strong attitude of mind where we're inclining the mind towards love and kindness and friendliness. There's a famous quote from Rilke that probably many of you have heard where Rilke says, perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Maybe I'll read the whole, this is um, from Letters to a Young Poet, where this comes from, and it's actually a letter that he wrote to somebody. And it's, it's really lovely, so I'll read the whole thing. If only we arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you mustn't be frightened, dear Mr. Cuppus. If a sadness rises in front of you larger than any you have ever seen, if an anxiety like light or cloud cloud shadows move over your hands and over everything you do, you must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. Why do you, want, why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery, any depression, since after all, you don't know what work these conditions are doing inside of you? So sincere. <laughs> Just bring, you know, trust and love everything that arises. And I think if we look at the fear that arises rises in us more, more deeply, this lack of safety, this fear, this lack of safety that we experience, that we feel, can manifest as a particular kind of fear. And I think that what we are really afraid of is our own mind. I started to reflect on this a couple of years ago when I was taking a teaching with my teacher, Sokni Rinpoche. And in one of his teachings, he just kind of threw out, just kind of very easily, and kind of not making a big deal about it, he just said, don't be afraid of yourself. And I kind of was taken back a little bit. I said, don't be afraid. I'm not afraid of myself. I'm afraid of everything out there. You know, I'm afraid of the people. I'm afraid of situations. I'm, but I'm not. And then I just kept kind of reflecting on it and reflecting on it. And I really started to sense that maybe he's right. Maybe it's that I'm really afraid that I won't support myself, that I really won't take care of myself. I think that we might be afraid because in some ways we're alienated from ourselves. 
there's a way we cut off so frequently from our experience that we don't really know who we are. So there's a way that we don't fully feel safe in our own body, in our own skin. And in that lack of safety, of not knowing who we are, there's, it kind of, there's a real shakiness. There's a way we feel very unsettled. We can feel that kind of that unreliability of the way things are in that not knowing. I think we're also afraid of ourselves because we get so attacked by our own mind. Our own mind that is judgmental and doubtful and critical and comparing and belittling and, you know, telling us that we're not good enough and that we're worthless and we're bad and we're evil and we're wrong. And that's... (laughs) How do we respond to that? No. So we feel shaky, we feel insecure, we feel frightened. And we feel that we don't have the capacity to take care of ourselves. We lose touch with that inner strength of who we are. The Buddha says, whatever an enemy might do to an enemy or a foe to a foe, the ill-directed mind can do to you even worse from the Udana. And, but usually this fear that we feel, this anxiety, this agitation that we feel inside, it usually gets projected out, doesn't it? It's usually we find other things to say, it's their fault, or, you know, it, they're wrong, or if that would change, or if the situation would change, we put the blame and the judgment outside of ourselves. And when we do that, we do lose connection with what's really going on for us. But it's not to say that there aren't real fears. Of course there are real fears in the sense that there are ways that are definitely unsafe in this world. It's not to say that all the fear resides here in terms of what we're encountering in our life. But what the the point is, is that if I'm cut off, from my fear that I'm experiencing in myself, then I'm not really going to have access to that presence, which is going to allow me to know how to respond to the situation that I encounter. If I'm continuing to project out and cut off from what I'm really experiencing here, I'll lose access to my wisdom, to my knowing, that will then guide me to respond to what's occurring. So it's not that the fear is wrong or that I have to get rid of the fear, it's that I need to stay present with my fear, as Rilke was saying. I need to to stay connected with it. In order to stay connected to it, I have to find a friendly way to hold it, a friendly relationship to it, so that I'm not continuing the fear and the alienation towards my own experience towards the fear itself, which then we would say the fear of the fear, or the rejection of the fear, or the alienation of the fear, or cutting off from the fear. Then I am cutting off from myself, and I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose the, the, the integrity that will allow me to function in the world in the way that I need to function. So again, we are reminded to come back into presence, into connection, because otherwise we will lose this sense of inner support, that which supports us, that which gives us the sense of feeling safe and supported in ourselves. We'll lose the connection with our inner resources that spring up from the ground of our being, that spring from the heart of compassion and love. This is from Nisargadatta, one of the great Indian sages in the 20th century. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, 
you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it resolutely. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. So we go that way. We, we need to start here for the love to go out that way in its, the, in its profundity and its depth. When this love goes out, it affects everyone. You could feel that here. Some people are really beginning to experience in that quality of presence that is being touched here, the way that presence goes out and includes the other people here, includes other, all of Gaia House, the nature around that presence begins to expand and it's an embracing, loving, connecting presence. This is from another, uh, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, that wonderful Palestinian poet, American Palestinian poet, called Red Bocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, Feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where, where he's headed. That way, he'll have strength enough to answer. <laughs> or by then, you'll be such good friends, you don't care. <laughs> Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone, everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. <laughs> I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. Something turns. <laughs> rather than turning towards self-interest, narrowing conditions into what I want, what's for me, something turns, the heart turns out, embraces others, embraces all things in friendliness. I think one of the difficulties we have in contacting our own experience of love is that we may look for that experience to manifest in a particular way. Again, we may have some kind of idea about what it would feel like or what it would look like if we were loving. And I know that I had this for a long time, particularly with the metta practice, repetition of phrases, that I had the sense that something was supposed to happen in my experience where sort of all the tension and the contraction would just melt and my heart would open and then there would just be this radiant light that would just go out and it would just embrace everything and I would just feel this light and upliftment and um, that would be the love, the metta. And I think <laughs> what can happen is that when we have some kind of idea, and you might want to examine your own ideas of this, then we might miss 
the ways that the love is actually manifesting for us. I think that we might look in the wrong place or we might look in the wrong way. When I reflect on this, I, I see that loving kindness can actually manifest in three centers of the body. We can experience metta from the heart or in the heart. We can experience love or metta in the head. And we can experience love or metta in the belly or in the whole body. When we experience metta from the heart, we may experience that as some kind of energetic movement around our heart, some kind of sensational experience there around the heart. And it may feel like there's some heat or there's some, uh, some density kind of opening up or there might feel like this kind of a light kind of radiance or soft kind of feathery radiance coming out. We might experience that around our heart sometimes when we're doing the loving kindness. It's very much, this is the heart center, the heart chakra in the, in the system of the chakras. So there can be this quality of a heart opening experience. I'll tell you a, a little story about um, a yogi who I was just working with at the month-long retreat at Spirit Rock in March. And this is a man I had been working with for over some time as well outside of the retreat. And he was having a very hard year. There were certain conditions in his life that were happening that were very difficult. In the fall, this past fall, his, his mother died. She had been ill for six months or eight months. And there was a lot of difficulty in the family, and he was concerned about his father. And the mother and the father were living together, and the father was left alone. And he hadn't had that good of a relationship with his father, so it brought that. He had to start examining his relationship with his father. And all that started to die down a little bit, and he was able to go to the month retreat because he didn't have to. His mother had passed away. He didn't have to be concerned about the caretaking. So while he was on the month retreat, he, um, before he went, he, he knew that his five-year-old niece was quite ill. He had a, a niece, the, the daughter of, of his, um, uh, I'm not sure if it was the brother-in-law or how, how the relationship was, but somebody he was very close with who had cancer, who was not in a good state. And so before he went into the retreat, he asked if anything happened that he be notified. And it was, yet he'd been waiting, oh, two years or three years to get the conditions together so he could sit this month retreat. It was very, very important to him. And in about the second week, he got a call uh, from the family that the niece had died. And on, we had an altar at Spirit Rock that we um, put up for the, at the month retreat where people can put pictures and poems and any kind of beautiful uh, reflections or objects on this altar. We build the altar during the month. And he had put a picture of the niece on the altar uh, with the father in her shaved head and holding her little teddy bear, very beautiful um, a picture before he got the news, just so she could have metta, loving kindness, sent to her during the retreat. And then when he got the news that she died, he put a little, that she died, he put a little note mentioning that on the altar that she had passed away. He was just, he was really wanting to practice, you know, with concentration and samadhi, but he was a wreck. He was a mess. After all the grief and all that he had been dealing with with his, with his parents and his mother dying, still grieving that, and, and then having his five-year-old niece, who he loved so much, having her die, he was just falling apart. And he came into an interview with me, and he was so open. He was so vulnerable, and he was so present. He was right there. And I asked him to say, you know, what is it? How, how are you right now? How are you feeling? And he said, this, these are the words, and I thought they were such beautiful words. He said, I feel the quivering of my heart as I allow myself to stand in the middle of don't know. 
like everything was falling away. His, he, there was nothing at that point that he felt he could hold on to. The grief was so strong in his heart of these loved ones falling away, passing away. And he just felt the quivering of his heart. And yet standing in the middle of don't know, I felt that the sense of the equanimity right in the middle of that, the love and compassion that was just bursting forth from his being, right in his heart. So sometimes we can have this very direct experience of this love just just pouring out right from the center in this quivering in the pain and the love manifesting in that way. But it's not always that way. Sometimes it may be an experience that we feel just from the head, which can be a, a, a kind of a mental orientation of love towards what's arising in our experience, toward what's arising in our mind, towards the thoughts itself, the patterns itself, and we can be meeting those patterns with a loving attitude, with a kind attitude. It's not a strong experience. It's not something that has come about through conditions that we've had to face or challenges that we've had to face, but it's just a quiet, still movement of the attitude of love itself being generated towards our experience in that kind, gentle, patient way, where we can feel that kind of, that, that, that there is love, there is allowing, there is embracing, there is acceptance of what is, which is an experience of love. Or we might feel it, a, a radiance or light or energy kind of coming from the lower center out, up and out and down and all around, a kind of love that's generating out from the whole body experience towards all things and em- embracing all things, where we can begin to feel that we're not even separate that love is radiating out or that kind of quality of radiation is, is, is going out to all things where it dissolves the boundaries between me and you or me and other. And it may not even be a strong quality where there's light and radiance. Sometimes it may be like that. Some people might experience it like that where it's really, there's a real luminous kind of radiant quality of light just going through everything where there's not much separation. But sometimes that can be very quiet. A very, again, very still kind of sense of not many boundaries of the body being so well-defined as we walk outside in nature or in the garden or just hearing sounds or there's just a way that we feel that the awareness or consciousness itself as love is embracing all things without distinction, without so much of that sense of separateness. And we may even call this kind of a a universal or or a unified love where there doesn't seem to be any more of, 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 there doesn't seem to be two, this and that, but there's more of that quality of oneness, one, oneness, where all things begin to kind of merge together. And it doesn't, it, it, this experience of love does not take one form. We don't need to look in a particular way. We don't need to say, oh, well, when I feel this, then I am loving, or I must not be loving now because I'm not feeling that. But rather, when we rest back, when we settle back and look to see what is happening, rather than looking to see, well, is this loving, or how can I be more loving, or I should be more loving, but rather settling back and say, well, what is my experience right now? Right now, am I in resistance to the way things are? Right now, is there a quality of allowing, of non-resisting, of just simply being? Of receptivity, of ease, of calm, 
and saying, oh, what's this? Maybe this is what's being spoken about. Just this. This lack of resistance, where I'm not in conflict with. But yeah, it's, it's okay. Things are okay right now. And I think once we start really paying attention, that may be happening many, many more moments than we really know. It may be that many, many moments of our day are actually filled with this experience of, of ease, not resisting, of allowing, of receiving. And yet we may not recognize that these are the moments that we're, we're really wanting, <laughs> that we're looking for, that we're searching for, that we think somehow are so mystical or so far away or you'll never reach or... But, right, yeah, right now, yeah, things are actually okay. And then we can begin to recognize that more and more and then just settle, rest, open to, identify. And perhaps then we can know our heart, if we want to call it heart, or this this ground of our being, which is has a certain solidity to it, has a firmness, has kind of a tangibility to it, has, a, has something that, that we can know, that we can feel, that we can experience, that feels good, that actually feels pleasurable, that we can like, we can trust, we can have confidence in. I'll end with this poem from Ryokan. The rain has stopped. The clouds have drifted away. And the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. Let's sit together for a minute. 